episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support. This week on Top Lines and Tales, I'm speaking to Phil Stocker, and Phil is the CEO of the National Sheep Association and has been for about 12 years now. Uh, Phil, welcome to Top Lines and Tales. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be there here with you. And I think I'm right in saying 12 years, you'd have taken over from Peter Morris and, and before that John Thorley. So it's been some, it, yeah. but it's been a, you've been in there a long time now and and, uh, and um, settled in that role well. Absolutely right. I started in November uh, 2011, and uh, yeah, in the three or four months' time, I'll come up for my my 12th year. Excellent. It's been a busy busy 12 years, but uh, I'd have to say an enjoyable 12 years too. Good, good. And and the NSA, for those that don't know, we have overseas listeners as well. The National Sheep Association, based in Malvern in Worcestershire, in England, there. But uh, you cover the whole country, don't you? Um, and have representatives all across all the regions as well. We do absolutely. We so we cover all regions of England, um, Wales, Scotland, and, and Northern Ireland. And as you say, we've got um, representatives and uh, committees and, uh, and 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 regional chairs and lots of, if you like, devolved activities in all of those um, nine regions. We call them the three devolved nations, and then uh, and, and all English regions as well. So we're very active on the ground. Okay, and and is that a a volunteer role, or there's some people in in paid positions across some of these? Uh, no, everyone that we've got someone in a, a paid role in all of those uh, nine regions, six English regions, and the, the three devolved nations. Um, they all perform slightly different roles. Some in the devolved nations are heavily involved in policy work in those nations, in Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Um, quite a few of them are involved in organising events, events like Welsh Sheep and North Sheep and Sheep Southwest. And one, two of them simply uh, act as secretariats for our committees. So they all do slightly different things, but yeah, they're all um, financially remunerated. Remunerated, okay. and uh, and uh, yeah, a good bunch of people. And I, I see, and I've just looked through the list briefly, and there's some quite high-profile people like Mary Dunlop there in the Scottish region, who I know a Beltex, uh, quite a high-profile Beltex breeder. Do you, do you canvass for people like that, or how do people get appointed into these roles? Is this by committee, or do they apply, or how does it work? Uh, in, in roles like um, Mary, Mary is um, the treasurer of our Scottish region. As I say, all nine regions have got um, chairs, and they've all got uh, vice chairs and, and treasurers, and they've got a, a regional manager as well. Um, the regional managers we appoint, and the regions take a lead in that, so they select the people that are most suitable for them. Uh, the roles, the honorary roles, like uh, chair and vice chair and, and treasurer, they are uh, nominated and elected usually at the annual regional membership meeting okay. and so they're, they're all they're, they are all uh, a voluntary post those uh, those posts only the regional managers that are remunerated okay okay that covers that and, and uh, it's an open question this one but uh, what does the NSA actually do let's let's just can you can you summarize it into a few sentences that's quite a challenge actually but we we're, we're here um uh, we, we create a community for, for sheep farmers, and we very much act as a bridge between the sheep farming world and the outside world. And when I say the outside world, I mean, I'm talking very much of our policymakers, politicians, our civil servants, people that set the framework for, uh, within which we work, uh, organizations, uh, the, the bridge between our sheep farmers and other organizations, some of who 
share our interests and some who uh, have got quite opposing interests. But we try and um, explain sheep farming to uh, to other organisations and increasingly to the public as well. The public are, uh, I suppose, increasingly hungry for knowledge and information about how their food is produced and how the land is managed too. And so I often feel we act as a bridge uh, between the sheep farming community and the outside world. But we also, interestingly, increasingly, I think, act as a bridge coming back the other direction as well because, the, as, you, you know, as we all know, that the world is being... Uh, faced with a, a, a very wide uh, set of uh, challenges that make the world a, a changing place. And we do try to, um, uh, I suppose, to translate a lot, a lot of what we see going on in the wider world, globally and nationally, back to our sheep farming members as well to help them to uh, prepare for the future and maybe to adjust or change or evolve their businesses where necessary. Okay, that sounds like a, a pretty good pricey of that. And you mentioned members there. I mean, the, the NSA has been in existence, I think, a hundred years or so. And how is that? How is that funded? Is that funded through the membership, or are you government funded? Uh, no, we're not government funded at all. It's funded um, uh, mainly through our membership, although um, we run a number of events, things like the National Sheep Event, again, North Sheep, Welsh Sheep, uh, Sheep Northern Ireland, all those sorts of events. We uh, raise some funds by doing those sorts of activities, uh, but we're predominantly funded through our membership. Increasingly over the last um, 10 years, I guess, we've uh, tried to diversify our income, uh, as a lot, a lot of businesses, our farming businesses have been encouraged to do really. So we are involved in a number of development uh, projects and research projects um, that uh, have got sheep farming at their, at their interest in their heart. And so we, we, we do apply for um, projects, uh, initiative, de- development grants, wherever we can. But still, I mean, it, it's it's quite right and appropriate, I think, for our organization to be predominantly funded through our membership because we're working for them and we want the freedom to be able to do what our members want us to do. So we are still primarily a membership-funded organization. Okay, and, and uh, we're talking to members across the UK. We'll maybe go into numbers in a second. But what are the benefits of a member? I mean, if, if people listening to this that aren't members can just sort of tell us what are the benefits of being a member of the National Sheep Association? Well, there's two, two well, I often look at um, membership of any organization in two ways, really. It's what um, you can do for the organization and the people that it represents, and also what you personally get from that organization. And people get a number of things from the organization when they join. You know, we, we do a, 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 buy- a, a, sorry, a six-weekly magazine called the Sheep Farmer Magazine, which is full of updates and technical information, lots of information in there about, uh, about, about uh, improving sheep productivity and sheep health. Um, you get um, either reduced or, or free entry to the activities and the events that we do around the country. Um, we produce a weekly e-newsletter that, that members get as well to keep them up to date with what's going on. So there's a number of things that our members actually get, if you like, hard returns. But then more so, I think, you know, um, we're an organization that uh, is working on behalf of the whole sector. And it's a very diverse sector. And this is, it's very much about people contributing to an organization to promote their interests and to stand up for them. And we are quite unique. I mean, there's no other organization in the UK that is looking after the sheep industry as a whole, across the whole of the UK. You know, we are quite unique. 
Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so as, as much as anything, this is about, um, you know, people uh, contributing to, if you like, a club that is working on their behalf and sharing their interests. Sure, yeah, like a community that, that people want to be involved mm. in, and quite right. And you mentioned the Sheep Farmer magazine, we're going a long time now. I used to put adverts in there many years ago, and when Howard used to run it there. And, and that's, f- mm-hmm. that's free to your membership, and it is full of a lot of interesting information. And does that go on general mm-hmm. sale as well? Do you, do you sell, sell copies of that to the, general, nope. to the, to the non-members? No, we don't. We don't actually. It's exclusive to to to, to our members. So no, we don't. We don't sell that any any, any wider at all. And we don't. Uh, and uh, non-members don't receive our weekly e-newsletter either. So there's a number of things that are quite exclusive to our our membership, uh, our members. And uh, yeah, we're keen, we're always keen, obviously, for more people to join us and to help to um, steer the organisation and and come together to 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 make sheep farming a, a, a stronger voice in the world i guess i mean we've even come together with um a number of uh global organizations over the last three or four years to to try to create more of a a global movement for sheep farming if you like you know there's all sorts of other movements active across the world environmental movements animal welfare movements conservation movements you know why not create the a movement that is um, for and want to see sheep farming and pastoral livestock farming succeed in the future, and that's very much what we're about. Okay, I'll maybe come on to your overseas um, interest in a second. But let's just stick with UK for the moment. Sort of, what numbers of sheep do we have again for our overseas listeners and for myself? Actually, what numbers of sheep are there in the UK now, and how many sheep farmers out there? And are numbers going up with sheep or down? Or where's the industry sitting at the moment? Yeah, so I'd say the industry is fairly stable at the moment. We're sitting at around about 15.5 million breeding ewes. I suppose total sheep numbers, including uh, lambs, would be somewhere in a region of 32 million. Um, they've been fairly stable for the last um, seven or eight years. Slight increases. Um, but again, I'd say that those increases are, are um, you know, they're not, they're, they're, they're at a level that is um, quite sustainable and quite, um, in line with market demand as well. So we'd have somewhere in a region of, um, uh, 65,000 sheep holdings in the UK, somewhere in that order. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah, I would say overall we're, we're, we're in a fairly stable and sustainable place really we're seeing we're seeing ch- changes in trend we're, uh, trend changes i guess in the industry um but that's not new whatsoever we're definitely we have over the last 20 years and we continue to continue to see a bit of a decline in sheep numbers in in the uplands um and in part that's due to land being lost to afforestation or more recently rewilding projects or agro-environment projects that are driving sheep numbers down in those uplands. So we are seeing a reduction in sheep numbers in upland areas, uh, but actually we're seeing an increase in numbers of sheep in, in our lowland, particularly arable areas, where we're seeing a much greater integration now of sheep within arable rotations. In the rotation, uh, yeah. Which, again, is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I can see that certainly um, happening more and more now with uh, animals keep and mm. sheep coming into the rotation. And, and we talk, a lot of our listeners, our pedigree breeders are on here, there, and uh, I know you sort of umbrella all the breeds there. I mean, how many different breeds of sheep are there in the UK now? That's an interesting question. Well, we've got 83 um, breed societies affiliated with, with NSA. Now, that would include some in a region of 63 um, uh, native pedigree associations, so um, breeds such as the Suffolk and the Hampshire Down and the Soe um, and the Texel. You know, there's a 
there's a whole range of different breeds there. Yeah, we've got 83 breed societies that are affiliated with the NSA, 63, uh, if you like, native purebreds, and the rest would be some uh, new breeding companies and some of the new uh, composite breeds, things like the Meatlink and the Cambridge, and more recently the Exlana and um, and some of the ABBA, the Innovis ABBA um, lines as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a huge amount of genetic diversity. There, there is, and the genetics are moving all the time, as you said, and companies like, like Innovis are um, developing mm-hmm. these, and the, the new breeds being developed all the time. And do they get instant recognition? And we, you know, in, in the dog world nowadays, we see Labradoodles and Poodle Doors and whatever they're all called. Do these, when people start bringing a new breed in there, how do they get to become a, a, a registered breed, if you like, under the NSA banner? Well, they have to, first of all, they have to register with DEFRA as a unifying authority, as as a breed society. And to be able to do that, they need to have a a constitution and and stated breed objectives. Uh, Once they've got that, then they can uh, become affiliated with the National Sheep Association. And again, we act as a voice for them and and connect them with with a whole range of work that's going on in the UK. And I think it's really important to recognize as well that some of the new composite breeds, the Aberlines, the Innovis Aberlines and the Exlanas and the Meatlinks, you know, we can't continue to innovate and progress and and develop uh, those sorts of uh, lines with really objective and clear breeding um, plans without the, the whole range of, uh, of of other native breeds and, and breed societies that act as a foundation. So they're all equally important. And in my mind, you know, what we need to be doing is uh, um, it, this is not about preserving genetics. It's about uh, maintaining a wide diversity of genetics and hopefully everyone uh, agreeing that we need to, we can make advances in genetics without all sheep needing to become the same. Um, definitely with a focus on the traits that those individual and different breeds are known for. Okay. And that, They've all got a purpose. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's the likes of the Logie and Dona with, with the Ingram boys up there in the north there that sort of I paddle their own canoe, I suppose, with, with their own breeds there, but quite specific in, in one region. As you said, people are using hybrids and getting into hybrids more. If we go into America, obviously, in the cattle industry, which we, we have quite an association with on this podcast, a lot of hybrids being used there, but the, the, the British cattle industry is very protective of each one of its individual breeds. But I think the sheep are starting now to look more or farmers are quite prepared now to use uh, more crossbreds, mm. if that's the right word, within the industry. Definitely. I mean, if you look at the um, the growth in crossbred rams um, that we've seen over, again, this last 10 years, um, there would have been a time when the crossbred rams, things like the, the Suffolk Texel cross ram, would have been frowned on in terms of uh, its use on a commercial farm. But now it's... Um, they're, they're really regular and, and what you get from that hybrid vigor as well and the ability for rams to be able to maybe make more use and it passes some of that hybrid vigor on into its lambs as well and I think people are recognizing the value of uh, a wide use of genetics it's really important to keep those genetics uh, pure because otherwise you you, you know you just get a, a general dilution but also uh, to be able to use them as a, um, an attribute to cross and, and, and uh, develop new strains, new breeds, focus on new traits. You know, as I say, the, said earlier, I guess the world is changing. Mm-hmm. We've got all sorts of different demands on us, and, and it will, we have to uh, adapt and adjust our, our, our the breeding of our farms to suit some of the demands that have been made on us. You know, things like the ability now to be able to thrive 
outdoors on grass with lower use of um, concentrates and, and, and feed. Again, you need certain genetics to be able to do that. Certainly. And I mean, the Beltex obviously has crept in amongst a lot of these hybrids. Now I know my friend Robert <laughs> Patterson there you know, sells a lot of Beltex cross Charlie tops and, and uh, you know, a huge demand. <laughs> but the Beltex sort of came in and it, it found a niche, didn't it, really, just to get a bit more shape about some of these other breeds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And that was very much in response to a market interest and market demand. And it did. It filled a niche. And uh, again, it allowed a real focus on, on, on land confirmation for a certain market. Sure. And uh, again, they've been very successful. Sure. And let's just go on to your overseas. You mentioned just now there you guys communicate across Europe and, and further afield. I know. And uh, how does our sheep industry in the UK sit in global terms? Uh, we would be somewhere in the region of seventh or eighth in terms of the, the, the size of our sheep industry. So, again, we're a small nation. If you look at us on an atlas, we're a tiny little dot, really, uh, in terms of the global landmass. But we're really significant in terms of sheep farming. We'd be seventh or eighth in terms of uh, the, the scale of production um, and, and also significantly we're third in terms of uh, volumes of sheep uh, exports in, in the world uh, behind Australia and New Zealand. So what that tells me is that we're really um, good at uh, producing sheep in this country. We've got conditions that allow us to produce grass. Uh, again, it is ideally suited for sheep production, but not only is this country good and well suited for sheep production, we've also got the processing and the infrastructure, the trade networks and the trade development to be able to uh, move products and to place products around the world to maximize or optimize the value of the carcass and to create new markets and create competition. And that's all good and really healthy for our industry. Okay. And I mean, I know our beef industry is it's one that I've spoken maybe a little bit more about, if you like, but we are regulated, aren't we? And there's outfits like Rumor. I don't quite know what they exactly do, but we're regulated in, in quite a strong way compared to a lot of other nations that we are. You know, our health status is very high. We've we've always been known for high standards uh, here in the, in Britain, and I think um, you know back what, four or five years ago, uh, well five or six years ago, I guess well, after the EU referendum, um, Michael Gove at the time um, set out the direction for British agriculture, which um, is no different now to to what it was then, which is all about high standards and um, and uh, and premium uh, and quality products and trying to carve a niche out for ourselves across the globe based on based on those principles you know we're not and that because of our uh, fairly high regulations our high environmental demands high animal welfare interests um we're, we're not a nation that is going to and because of our high population as well in this country we're not a nation that is just going to compete with commodity markets on on global on glo global terms you know it, our, our future is about setting our store out as a high quality high value premium brand with uh, underpinned by by good standards and those standards include uh, yeah environmental regulation you know welfare regulation um, along with our farm assurance schemes um, and, and just the general high standards of practice that we tend to employ here in, in Britain. Okay, and you mentioned exports there. We are an export nation, but of course, since uh, since we did leave the EU, the, yeah, the live exports have, have, uh, have been um, curtailed. And, and are we seeing, are you, are you guys, are you working towards getting that live export market open again? Uh, is, is that going to happen now, Phil? We, we we are working to try to get the live um, market into Europe working again for uh, breeding animals. Um, you know, the, the, the government have been very clear on this, that they've been trying to, that they intend to stop um, the movement of live animals for uh, slaughter. 
uh, across in, in, in Europe or for further finishing as well. They've also been very clear that um, there's no intention to, to stop that trade in, in, in live breeding animals. So we, we are working to try to get that back uh, open again. The reason it is not happening at the, uh, just now is that um, there are no border control posts with live animal facilities on the other side of the English Channel which means that there's nowhere to be able to dock and, and record and go through the paperwork and do the veterinary checks on any live animals going in from on, on that, uh, what we call the sh- short straits from Dover, Dover to Calais. Um, and until that is resolved, and that all comes down really to uh, get into a point of more harmonious negotiating or relationships between Britain and, and the European Union. Uh, ironically, you know, uh, we saw... Well, for many years, again, there's been a lot of animal welfare activist uh, opposition to live animals going across the channel. Um, one way or another, we've seen that trade stop. And ironically, you know, we are seeing animals going through a much longer journey now across to Northern Ireland, down through Southern Ireland, and across a, a much longer sea journey to, 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 into, into Southern France. Um, uh, these are just for um, breeding animals, um, and uh, no one would say that's desirable. But some people where that trade exists, um, you know, have got no option really but to to follow that route. So we are working to try to reopen the, those um, those live routes for for breeding animals. Uh, we are seeing more interest in uh, from countries around the world in in our genetics, and that trade is happening in the way of um, germplasm, both semen. And increasingly embryos, and we'll have seen just this last week this uh, trade in embryos open up to to the U.S. I think we'll see more of that. Um, Europe is still a really important market to us for for, for for meat. You know, still by far the majority of sheep meat that is exported from Britain still goes into the European Union, uh, but it goes um, across uh, in in, the, in a meat or a carcass form. You know, not in live animals now. Okay. No, well, that's good. I mean, as you're probably aware, I, you know, I, I live in, in mid-France and there's a huge demand from, from quite a few people around here trying to get these live animals in. As you said, that route through Ireland is is open but very difficult and obviously the, the scrapey uh, genotyping is, is, is very much a part of that as mm-hmm. well. Um, but, but whose responsibility would you say it is to uh, put those docking stations in place in, in, in places like Cannes and, and Dover to... Is, is that up to the French to do that, or is there something we can do that from a financial? Well, it is. I mean, that's been one of the sticking points. Really, it is up to the the, the French and the European Commission to, to to put those facilities in in, in place. Um, we, the industry, uh, the NSA, uh, the unions, a host of other organisations have done what we can to try to put pressure um, on Defra uh, and our government to uh, to do what we can. Uh, we've even suggested that the um, that we should offer um, the checking points this side of the channel um, for the the, um, the EU to, to come and do those checks before the animals go over, so we could provide those live animal facilities this side, really, okay. with all the paperwork and the and the the, the lorries being sealed. Uh, but again, this it, it is an EU responsibility. Um, it comes down to the EU to do it, and um, you know it would just be nice to see more. Um, livestock keepers and farmers over in e- Europe, I guess, I guess, putting more pressure on the European Commission to try and do it so the trade works for them. Sure. That's what we need, really. Sure. Okay. And that likewise with the cattle as well, of course, that live cattle trade. They, they, yeah. A lot of and people pigs desperate. Too. Yeah. And pigs. 
lot of people yeah, desperate to get breed, well. breeding cattle and breeding animals out here. Anyway, let's just go yep. on to go on to yourself, uh, Phil. You came into the, to this business as I mentioned earlier on um, uh, twelve years ago, and you came from the Soil Association. What, what's your background within the industry? Um, so I was um, I was born and brought up in a, an urban setting in in Bristol with, with um, family that farmed over in Wales. I spent a lot of my formative years. Uh, uh, staying with them, visiting them, living with them, and uh, I guess that um, was the uh, the start of my interest in uh, in, in, in farming. Uh, as soon as I could, I, I, I left school and I, I signed up to what was then the agricultural apprenticeship scheme. Um, I was linked with Lackham College in in, in Wiltshire, uh, working on a, a large estate up in in, in Wiltshire, um, and I went through a very conventional uh, you know farming. Uh, the, the, Education, I guess, in terms of going to college and working on farms and estates, I progressed into farm management. Um, I managed a, 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 a couple of farms, and uh, and then I, I established my own share farming enterprise. Um, my wife and I moved to Somerset um, and farmed there for about nine years. So I've had a, a long background in, uh, in, in practical and, and commercial agriculture. And then I took a change of direction um, relating to BSE, actually. It was... Um, Due to BSE, that I, um, my career took a change of direction, and uh, I moved away from practical farming and into, um, if you like, agricultural development and, 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 and agricultural policy. Um, working for the Soil Association back in 1997, um, I worked there for some region of 15 or 16 years, and that really opened my eyes to a, a completely different um, aspect of agriculture. I guess. Um, I would have never dreamt for a moment that I would have um, started to work or or be interested in that in that uh, in that world really, but it's, it's fascinating and it does that whole world of agricultural policy um, and uh, the industry overview, I guess, is so influential for the future of um, of agriculture in Britain, of land management in Britain, and our food in Britain too. You know our, 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 how we source our food. That time at the um, Soil Association, I guess, was at a time when there were big questions just coming through BSE about the way that um, our food was being produced here in Britain. Um, it was at a time when lots of farmers were struggling financially, struggling in terms of knowing which way their businesses were going to go. There was a, it was a start of a, um, a, 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 a huge interest, I guess, in sustainable agriculture. And look where we are now in terms of the numbers of times that we use that phrase, phrase sustainability. Um, and, I, and during those years as well, it was like going back to college or university, to be honest, because there were so many um, innovating and pioneering farmers that were um, just testing and trialing a whole range of different approaches that have become commonplace, things like uh, the use of clover within lays and moving away from um, you know, routine uh, worming of, of sheep, for instance, you know, find, trying to find alternative ways of um, promoting health in, in our livestock without over-reliance on, on, on inputs. Um, you know, what can we do to make our ruminants in Britain more forage-based? Um, managing grassland and crops without um, herbicides and, and fungicides, you know. Organic farmers, the Soil Association of Organic Farmers were dealing with those issues back in the mid-90s and Prior to that, as well, we saw big growth of uh, of interest in those sorts of things, those sorts of issues around that time, and it was a really exciting time to be part of a an organisation that was seeing substantial growth. 
And I think as, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, um, uh, the outcome of that world, that movement, I guess, has really influenced uh, a, a broad scale, you know, general uh, agriculture. And, and it was definitely the, the birth of the, the whole regen agriculture movement in Britain, you know, the organic farming and agroecological farming, I guess, was the, it was very much the foundation and the start of thinking about regen ag in, in Britain. And that obviously gave you massive grounding to, to move into the role that you did um, at Absolutely. the head of the NSA. And, and the and the NSA themselves, you, you answer to a, to a board, I, I assume. You've got is it Dan Phipps, your current chairman, and previous chairman, yeah. John Gildard, Jonathan Barber. There's been some high-profile guys in there. And and, uh, and Brian Griffiths. Brian, if you're listening, Brian, Brian and I were so pals at school together many years ago, but another, another good farmer and table guy. Mm, absolutely, yeah. The, the NSA is a, a, a charitable company. That's our constitution. So as a charitable company, we've got a board of... Uh, trustees, uh, trustees of the charities and uh, char- charity and directors of the, of the company. So it's a, it's a board of, uh, 14 people. Um, they're all, uh, nominated and elected from our regions. So they, you know, if, if you like, they, they represent the whole of the, the, uh, the NSA across the, the, the UK. Um, and it's those, that board that legally responsible for the organization and the direction that we take. And they're supported by a number of other, uh, committees, uh, a finance and general purposes committee, um, and a UK policy and technical committee. And again, in turn, the UK policy and technical committee is supported by a whole number of uh, regional committees, which gives us our grassroots, and uh, you know, uh, puts our tentacles back into the, into the earth ac- across the UK, I guess. So, uh, yeah, there's a really, uh, you know, strict and solid, um, structure behind the, the, the NSA, but it's still a very much grassroots organization. Okay. And uh, with you at the spearhead, as I said, and, and, uh, you were recently, I think, um, uh, awarded, well, won an award there at the National Farming Awards. So, uh, congratulations on that. Was that, what was that one? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that was an outstanding achievement uh, award for the industry, which was uh, given by the Farmer's Guardian. And it was a real privilege. It was an honor. Uh, it was a privilege. And uh, again, you know, if I think back to uh, previous years, I wouldn't have ever dreamt that I'd be considered for anything like that, let alone, um, you know, be, be given that award. So no, it was a real honor, a real honor to have been given that award. Well, as I said, congratulations. And, and just talking about maybe hopping back to what you said about the Soil Association, I suppose we need to mention carbon. It, it, that word rears its head pretty much every week on, on our top lines and tails us heading towards net zero. And, and we could get into a deep discussion that we probably don't have time for. But how, how are UK farmers adapting to, to this need for change? And how, how many people are buying into this? I think um, I think people have started now to accept that um, that we've got a, a global problem that we've got to, that we can be part of the solution for. You know, I think there's still the jury is out in terms of how much uh, on an individual farm, how much we're actually contributing to climate change. When you consider that there's still um, you know, aeroplanes, well, apart from the fact that, that most of them are on strike, although they, they, they've stopped at the moment, but on a normal day, there's aeroplanes still buzzing around the world and, uh, you know, transport and huge energy, energy use of fossil fuels around the world. So you can have a, 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 an interesting discussion about to what extent our individual farms are really contributing to, to climate change. But I don't think you can deny the fact that there is more that we can do. And the more climate uh, responsible we become, the more we enhance our reputation and the more sustainable we come, we become. But also we, there are many ways that we can become part of the solution. And whether that is doing more to make the case that our farms can 
lock up a lot of this carbon, um, you know, through sequestration in, in our soils and in our hedgerows and various habitats around the farm, you know, so we can, we can be part of the solution. And, you know, some people already are. And in the future, you know, we will maybe benefit more financially from, um, from locking up that carbon and, 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 and being seen as a positive for not just, uh, cl- uh, carbon and climate change, but also for, biodiversity and nature as well. That's the other big challenge that we're faced with at the moment. Sure. So, so I think people are, you know, it wasn't many years ago, four or five years ago, that there would have been a lot of people that would still question whether climate change is taking place. I think the weather events that we've seen over the last four or five years have convinced most people that climate change is happening. Um, I think, again, the majority of people would accept that um, that, that human activity has definitely contributed to that change or sped that change up. And, um, yeah, I, I think most, most farmers that I meet and certainly most of our members are, are passionate about the, the, the environment and their farmed environment. And if there are solutions that are available to them, then, uh, and they, they work, then they're really quite keen to take up, um, new ways of, uh, climate smart farming, I guess. I think clover and lays would be a great example of that. You know, and all the focus on soils, you know, let's get our soils uh, in the right condition, yeah. make sure the pH is right, make sure that the soil structure is right. That'll lead to a, a more healthy grass and pasture growth. And ultimately that'll lead to a, 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 a better growth and a more productive sheep flock as well. So the whole thing goes hand in hand. Yeah. I think most farmers get to see that and understand that. I said we won't sort of go down too far down this this carbon route, but I did have Professor John Gilliland on the, the a podcast a while ago, based in Northern Ireland, where they are now coming up with ideas of how they can measure sequestration of carbon going back mm-hmm. into the ground. And I think once we can get that that measurement of how much we're taking in versus how much is going out, then then we obviously get a much yeah. more better balanced look at the, the, the whole question. Really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned uh, youngsters. We need to start encouraging youngsters coming into farming with the new ideas and what have you. And, and how are we encouraging youngsters? What, what Does NSA feel a responsibility or take a role in trying to bring youngsters back into the industry that, that maybe couldn't afford to get in? Yeah, absolutely we do. And uh, it was something that, uh, you know, when I joined back um, in 2011 that we um, – we uh, we started on a pathway of um, trying to put some more structure behind the work that, that the organisation was doing for young people for a long, long time. The NSA has, um, I suppose, supported young people and run young uh, next, shepherd, next generation shepherds events and tried to involve young people. But I was just aware that there was a lot of work going on and there was a lot more we could do. So uh, in two thousand and uh, late two thousand and twelve, we established a a new initiative called uh, NSA Next Generation, and we wrapped together a whole range of different um, activities now to try to encourage and then support um, youngsters coming into uh, the industry and the organisation. And when I look around, um, you know, most uh, most um, sheep-related activities and certainly NSA events, you know, there's no shortage of youngsters that are really interested and keen to come into this industry. And um, we're still one of the the, um, the, 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 the sectors of the, of the agriculture industry, I guess, that young people can get a foothold. There's still in relatively, um, low requirements in terms of capital needs. You know, we've got young people that are setting up, um, uh, new businesses, um, with no land whatsoever, with no land ownership whatsoever. They just, uh, all they own is a, a flock of sheep and maybe a, a Land Rover or a truck and a, and a quad and some handling. 
uh, equipment and a dog and they'll run their sheep on other people's land, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, wealthy people that are coming into the industry buying up um, uh, farms in beautiful parts of the country or whether it's arable farmers that are looking for a new livestock enterprise to go alongside, um, you know, the reintroduction of grass to um, to act as a break crop for cereals. You know, so there's, there's, there's still lots of opportunities. There's lots of interest. And we've, uh, you know, I think that the last 10 years have seen, we, we've seen the fruits of our labor in terms of now seeing some young people that are farming really successful sheep farming businesses. And from a selfish point of view as well, young people that are coming into the NSA because they will be the lifeblood of the organization in, in years to come. You know, we are seeing now young people that have been through um, our ambassador program, again, a, a program that we run for 10 years now come through that program coming into positions as regional chairs and uh, involved in a number of our committees as well and that's really important for the future that's excellent and is there somewhere where a lot of youngsters listen to this program is there somewhere do you do you offer part of your portal where they can go or report to you guys if they want to get into the industry or you can you guide them to the right people is there somewhere something we can tell them yeah definitely we we've recently established we've got a a next generation um social media network i guess that's um that we we we, uh acts as a a place where young people can come together and share ideas and just stay in touch with each other i mean the the people we've had 10 years now of an ambassador program where um each year there would have been some in a region of 12 or 14 people come together and we take them through a, a a year's program of technical and, and personal development and uh, one of the joys of that program has been that um, people stick together afterwards you know they go through that 12 month program and it's only that they come together about five or six times a year and they'll stay together for two or three days in each of those um, each of those periods so they get to know each other again professionally I guess and, and socially and they just stay together social media now allows them to do that quite e- sure. easily but and then what we've managed to do I guess is connect that whole network up on, on, a, on a wider scale so you know people are staying in, in in touch we are trying to put people we're, we're providing services for young people where uh with a, a, a jobs uh you know seek and and uh and looking for jobs service and a, a business um um match minding service as well uh, we run that on a fairly informal basis but we're fairly successful in terms of putting people in touch with the with the right contacts mm-hmm. um and yeah, and, and but but the other thing is that um, you know what I don't want to do is to set um, a young uh, person's uh, section off in separation to the rest of the organisation. I'd much rather try to make sure that we proactively integrate young people into our our mainstream committees and activities you know we don't want a, uh, I suppose an older generation NSA and a separate younger generation NSA we need to integrate the two and that's what I'm, I'm busy trying to do at the moment to make sure we've got those youngsters coming through excellent, excellent. with us doing activities that service their needs but actually bringing them in so that they influence the whole as quickly as they can excellent so the youngsters out there I'm not sure whether you, you need a CPH member a number to become part of the NSA I'm new, nope. so youngsters out there then just go online find the National Sheep Association and get yourself a membership that's a good foothold to get to absolutely the industry. absolutely okay. and we we actually again as a, another encouragement for young people we do a, a half price uh, under 27s membership for nsa excellent. as well so you know we're doing what we can financially to try to make life as easy as possible for them excellent and you mentioned communication i suppose another subject that we touch on here quite regularly on top lines and tails is the the mental health side of it and i know there's been strides made by 
companies like Farmstrong in New Zealand or what have you to put all this together? And does the NSA get involved in, in that side of it as well? Sheep, sheep farming can be a lonely place, can't it? It can. And, um, you know, in everything that um, we write about the NSA and every message that we put about the NSA, it, it always includes that social uh, aspect. I mean, the, the social side of things is uh, definitely an important part of sustainability. And without uh, people, without people in the right frame of minds, then you know the industry is not going to succeed in 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 the future. So we, you know, it, all the events that we run across the country. I've mentioned our national sheep event that we hold it in Malvern every second year, and then our regional events. Um, you know, they all. When I look around them, they perform such an important social element yeah. you know it is about sharing technical information it is about uh you know uh, i've been challenging discussions around farming and land management policy and that sort of stuff but it's also a place for people to come together and just chew the fat yeah. Yeah. and they love to do that and they perform a really important function in that in, in, in that area so yeah it's um it's a really crucial part of um of what we see our responsibility as in in the nsa is is the people yeah. um you know, we're still fortunate as a, a sector within agriculture, I guess, to have a fairly high number of of, um, of, of people involved, uh, a high number of people as well that would be running small and medium-sized enterprises and, and their own businesses, sometimes on a part-time basis. That, to me, is a success. Whereas if you look back over the last 20 years or so, you know, a lot of agricultural success has been about driving people out of the industry so that it become more efficient. You know, I mean, you can understand why we were there, but looking back now, it was never a great policy to, to reduce our, our, our social um, capital, if you like. You know, we need to find way of in, ways of including more people. Okay, well, it sounds like we, we are reversing that trend, and that's, that's brilliant. And you mentioned your sheep events, the one in Malvern, of course, the National Sheep Event, as you said, very well attended, but uh, yeah, the North Sheep, the Scotch Sheep, the Welsh Sheep, various things. And, and are these, mm. I suppose you said they are part of the, of the fund, fundraising um towards the NSA, but uh, do you try and bring the general public into these shows? Is there a place that, I mean, we talked earlier on about getting the the public need to know where their food comes from and and we need more connection with the public. Is this somewhere, are these events somewhere that the public can come along and actually get a better understanding of where the food comes from? Mm. Well, they can, but we don't push them as those events. And uh, one of the successes of these events is that they are business to business. And, um, you know, the trade that we work with, you know, people selling uh, sheep handling equipment or feed or pharmaceutical products or whatever it might be, you know, really value these events because they are business to business. So if the general public want to come along, they, they can do. We don't, we certainly don't stop them, but we don't push these events to the general public. What we do do though in, in all of them is to try to work with networks of, uh, of schools that might be local to those events. And w- we would always invite um, primary schools, and, um, and and sometimes older children as well to come along and and just take part as part of an educational process. Sure, sure. Um, so, we, but we uh, again, the way that the world is moving, I guess, means that so much of our communication with the public has has ended up being online and via our website. And what we do know is that we get um, an exceptionally high percentage of hits on our website from non-farmers from the the general public people that might just be out and about in the countryside um you know seeing sheep when they're going for a walk at the weekend or whatever um i've got some interesting questions and they come onto the website or they might 
ping us an email and ask, uh, and even the photograph sometimes of a sheep that they've seen and asking what breed it might be. And, <laughs> I've done that. Yeah, so, <laughs> 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 some, sometimes it's not easy because some of the breeds look fairly unidentified. But, um, but, yeah. but, but there is, but, um, yeah, yeah. we said about this, the connection and it is about you know, connecting. We have to do more as an industry, I think, and I've had this conversation with a few people recently. We have to do more as an industry to try and educate the general public where their food comes from and sort of reverse hmm. this disconnection that's going there and obviously again you said you're a portal that people could come to but is there anything else actively we can do to, to kind of narrow that divide a little bit there Phil? I think the um, the, the agricultural shows generally uh, an area where we obviously we know we get a lot of public footfall so we take part along with lots of other farming organizations in you know big events and shows like the Great Yorkshire show or the Royal Welsh or the Royal Highland show you know and many many more um, you know, so we play our part in trying to help to increase awareness of the of the public by attending and taking stands at at those sorts of shows. And then, really, uh, apart from that, it's uh, I think it's about the industry uh, working together and trying to join up our activities. You know, we're heavily we get heavily uh, involved behind the scenes and supporting um, Leafs uh, Open Farm Sunday, for for example. That's a great initiative. Um, and you know, the more we can add weight to existing activities, the better. AHDB's um, recent um, Eat Balanced, We Eat Balanced um, campaign, and we're coming up now to the first week in September, being Love Lamb Week. So again, there's a a big concerted push there um, to to put that message about uh, how delicious lamb is and how sustainable it, it is, uh, and how it influences the countryside through Love Lamb Week. So. You know, is is trying to get by, you know the organisations to come together, I guess, and try and support general promotional activities rather than everyone trying to do their own thing. You know, the more we can coordinate and link together on these things, the better. Okay. And we're very happy at the NSA to play our part in that. Yeah, sure, sure. And and you mentioned the yeah, the lamb weekend, and of course, yeah, we all love a bit of lamb as farmers, but to, you know the. I don't like to say the housewife, that's probably an outdated word now, but the, 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 the general public uh, will love to eat lamb, but lamb, of course, is becoming a more and more of an expensive commodity. And, and the more we have to invest in money, to, uh, there's a cost to getting that reconnection back with the public, then the, you know, the, that cost has to come from somewhere within the industry. So it is a little bit of a catch-22, isn't it? it? No, it really is, actually. And it, this is where the, um, I suppose the diversity in our markets in the sheep industry is really important for us. So we've got... Um, you know, we're not overly reliant on any one market. You know, I, I think maybe some in a region of 20 or 25% of the lamb that we produce here in Britain would be sold through our supermarkets. Um, a high percentage, some in a region of 40%, 35 to 40% would, would be exported. Um, you know, the halal market is really important to us as well, to the Muslim community. You know, somewhere in a region of maybe 30 or 40% of the lamb that we produce here would would be halal and go into that that Muslim market wow. is really important and that that uh, all, all that diversity just gives us a, a, a lot more uh, choice I guess mm-hmm. and it means that you know when something goes wrong somewhere we've got other markets to with a particular, a particular supply chain we've got other markets that we can rely on I, I think that we're really fortunate in that we've never really got um, uh, too closely connected with um, ultra processed foods and you know we've seen over the weekend with um, and news that research has found that um, highly processed foods uh, uh, you know lead to obesity and uh, and diabetes and uh, and all sorts and you know lamb really as I said earlier lamb uh, you know just suits that whole image of being um, high quality 
highly nutritious, um, you know, with good environmental standards, uh, very extensive and free range in, in, in its nature, is never going to compete with um, some of the lower cost proteins. But again, this is about trying to get across the value of, of the product to to, to, to consumers and uh, sure. you know I think um, you know we will in time I think get to a point where people will uh, understand and appreciate that nutritionally um, a product like lamb which is uh, out there on grass most of the time uh, fed relatively slowly and naturally nutritionally it is superior and it fits that whole you know, eat a little bit less meat, but eat higher quality meat mantra perfectly. Okay, and, and I'll, I'll add a little bit of a, a more to that as well. Of course, in, in the last 20 years or so, with the data-driven industry that we've, we've got involved now with the weight recording and what have you, in the back fat scanning, lamb going back, probably my, my when I was a youngster, lamb would be a fat product, which, because nowadays mm-hmm. it's a bit taboo, but nowadays <laughs> lamb it, it, it is has been bred to be lean and bred to be used sort of more eye muscle. and what have you. So the, 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 that's why the industry has changed to, to that. Yeah. Side. Absolutely right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think back to I mean, lamb always was a, a fatty, fatty product. It's not that that way now at all. I think there's two things there. Yeah. One has been about uh, breeding and some of these new breeds like the Texel and the and the Beltex and others that have come and and the scanning and the EBVs, the estimated breeding values that uh, Signet have worked on, so that farmers can make a more uh, selected choice, I guess, in terms of the, the genetic. But it's also been about um, market signals and farmers responding to, the, 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 to what the marketplace needs. So it has really, you know, farmers are much better now. It's selecting lambs and choosing them before they're overweight. And like, genetically, we've got breeds and systems that can uh, get to reasonable weights without them going over fat too. So in lots of areas, the industry has come together to again, consider what the, the, the market needs and to, to produce for that market yeah. very effectively in my mind. And when, and when you say you've exposed us to how much lamb is exported, of course, the export market again will dictate exactly what to, what lamb they want. We've, 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 been, we've, we've enjoyed chatting about these lambs. I probably will just give a little bit of a call. You've got a conference coming up uh, in October there, the NSA. Just tell us a bit about what that involved and who gets involved in that one. Uh, so this is a, a new conference that uh, this year is going to take place on the 25th of October, and it's being held uh, just outside of uh, Birmingham at the National Conference Centre. And the focus this year is going to be on, on on sheep health because this is one of the areas where I believe so strongly that we can make um, some real advances in terms of uh, reducing uh, losses, becoming more productive, I guess, um, uh, reducing our carbon footprint and reducing our costs as well. Without having to change the, the or put pressure, if you like, on the established farming system, sheep farming system. Okay. So, the the theme of this conference is going to be very much on sheep health. We've got um, some great speakers, uh, including lots of farmers who have uh, tried different techniques and have uh, changed their farming systems, or maybe used products and you know, new vaccines that have come along, and, and again shown that they can reduce the amount of uh, work and reduce the amount of losses as well. So it's, it's uh, yeah, the focus is on on sheep health. Quite Rightly so. Twenty fifth of October, and that's open to your members. Is it open open to non members or, or other people can come along and maybe join a membership and they it, get there? Absolutely, it's open to everyone. Uh, people, uh, you know, it's definitely promoted to our, our members, but uh, for non NSA members are, are welcome as well. They will be invited, but not forced or or overly pushed to become an NSA member. But uh, you know, if if people choose to join us, then. Uh, you know, I want to make sure that they're just very, very welcome. Well, I'll put it in my diary and I try and make that one myself, Phil. And, and I really do appreciate you taking time. I know you're a busy man. It's obviously our listener can tell that as well. So I appreciate you taking an hour of your time. And I hope that's sort of dispelled a few myths and, and given us a better understanding of how 
the, the, the sheep industry works in the UK and, and, and also, of course, how, what the NSA does for us all. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure and, uh, and, and a great, it's a great opportunity as well. So I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Phil. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales. And uh, as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support of this podcast. And uh, if you're thinking about how to boost fertility in your flock this autumn, Harbro's got you covered there as well. They, they now have offers available on feet and fertility lick buckets. And there's a great science behind these buckets. And there's a great story about how nutrition at the point of conception can influence lambs for the rest of their lives. So uh, it's a scientific uh, product and something which Professor John Robertson had uh, introduced them to quite some time ago. So don't forget to get in touch with Harbro for to, if more information on this and their other range of products and contact your local Harbro representative or find them on the internet um, on social media and while you're on social media don't forget to join our our top lines and tales facebook community where you'll find more information to back up this and previous episodes and also while you're listening to our podcast please click that button that allows you to follow us or to subscribe to the top lines and tales podcast because that will not only get you notified whenever we put out a new podcast but it will also uh, help us with our visibility and, and followings across the internet so uh, thank you to all your listeners again for listening to this week's Top Lines and Tales podcast.